Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as get to know some of the key personalities who work tirelessly behind the scenes to improve the standard of sports governance, sports law, in practice, keep sports running around the world. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today. He is a good friend. He's also a Law in Sport editorial board member. His name is Ricardo de Buen. He is the founding and managing partner of the law firm Dubuin Rodriguez Abogados in Mexico City. He has been an arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which I had no idea you'd been involved that long, since 2002. So an, an incredible career at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. He was on the ad hoc division for the Court of Arbitration for Sport during the London 2012 Games. He's a professor at various universities across Mexico. He's a visiting lecturer at law schools such as ISDE, Miami, and a whole bunch of other different universities around the world. He's a member of Rec Sports, which many of you will know. And generally, I know him as just a really nice guy. <laughs> He's the type of guy that you just want to talk to and catch up with. And so, Ricardo, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast. I'm trying to get this done, I think, for about five years now. We finally, we finally got it done. <laughs> we'll get That's it done. true. That's true, Sean. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I hope that we can chat interesting things. Oh, of course. Well, with you, always, always. <laughs> so before we get into your career, which I just, as I said, you know, before we started, I can't wait to find out a bit about your journey for a bunch of reasons I'll explain in a minute. And to set the scene for people, how has sports law in Mexico been developing you know, since you know, you've, you're one of the sort of the father figures of sports law in Mexico. So can you give your interpretation of how you've seen things develop and, and what is the state of play currently when it comes to sports law or the law as applied to sport, whichever way you want to interpret it, in Mexico? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Well, uh, we have not developed uh, as well as different countries, uh, for example, the UK or other countries in, in Europe and uh, also in the US, also Argentina and Brazil. I think that we are on our way, but uh, there's lots of things to do. Uh, right now, uh, the culture that, that the, the professional clubs, clubs have, uh, the owners have or used to have uh, maybe two or three years ago, it was that uh, a lawyer was not necessary uh, as being part of the of a club or, or, or the organization. The, the, uh, they used to do everything uh, with whatever they wanted to and, and avoiding uh, maybe in some cases to follow the rules. But this has changed. The truth is that it has changed maybe not three years, maybe uh, it's more, it's maybe five or six years. Uh, one of the things that have helped is uh, obviously the globalization of, of sports. And also that some players, especially in, in football, have uh, traveled more often to, to Europe. So they have to follow the rules. And one other thing, especially in football, is that, uh, uh, as you know, the Court of Arbitration for Sport is the appealing body uh, for all the Mexican Federation resolutions. So that has, has changed everything because now they have to go in front of a neutral entity and i think that the, the owners have understand understood that i think that they are 
doing uh, things better in, in the case of the football. Uh, we have other uh, professional uh, sports in Mexico. The main uh, that we have are baseball and basketball. Uh, they are comp economically compared, they are very small, but very important. Uh, we have in, in baseball, we have players from uh, the US, from uh, Latin America, in some cases from Japan also, from Asia. And in basketball, there's something new that uh, some of the Mexican play, uh, teams are, are uh, playing against some U.S., not, not the highest level, but some U.S. teams in a league that has been organized. So this uh, globalization has uh, uh, made all the, the owners of different sports and all the uh, stakeholders uh, to, to see that they need to have uh, clear rules that they have to follow them and that they need uh, lawyers <laughs> back there. So would you say then that the sector is, as you describe it, as professionalizing basically, and then because of that, because of the dispute resolution mechanisms, more professionals like yourselves being involved in terms of the, from providing legal advice, then what would you say in terms of the, say, the employment status then? So one of the big things that we've seen around the world is increasing unionization of athletes particularly in the team sports or employment rights being respected or at least fighting to get respected, obviously in your close, so in a more close proximity in the United States. How does that sort of labor issue pan out in, in Mexico currently? That's, that's a very, very good question. And uh, I think that we, don't, we are not in, a, in good conditions in that issue. As uh, I will maybe tell you later, one of my first experience related to sports law was, was representing uh, Football Players Union. Uh, maybe we can leave that <laughs> uh, for, for the future in this conversation. But uh, what has happened is that in Mexico, we have a different culture. Uh, the, the players, the professional players, doesn't seem to, uh, to, to have the concept of a union as a good one. Uh, we have had some problems in the past with the unions in general, not, not, also in, not, not only in sports. And uh, I think that ha that's, that thing has set, uh, affected us uh, or affected the way the players uh, see the unionized uh, or to be unionized. And also, I think that uh, owners have pushed too hard the players not to get unionized. That's the truth. So in professional uh, sports, there are not unions in any of them. And I think that it is very, very necessary, very, very necessary uh, in football, uh, in baseball, in, in uh, basketball, whatever, because that will help not only the players. I think that it will help also the business. If from outside you see a business where the one part of the one very important part of, of, of this business, the players, uh, doesn't have any power to take decisions regarding the, their own conditions, I think that, that we have half of the business. <laughs> and uh, as uh, if, if you see it from outside, I think that uh, there's something uh, missing. And uh, what, I, what I wanted to say is that. Uh, if you get that union, you get that collective bargain agreement, the value of each of the leagues will be more. Uh, Absolutely. I, and I think that this has not been understood by the owners. 
Uh, and do you think that seems to be a very common problem, more more so than I years ago would have anticipated? Because you can totally see where they're obviously they do have these collective bargaining agreements. Typically, the the leagues prosper, right? Because it gives a framework for dispute resolution. It gives a framework for for revenue sharing, and and so there's less distractions as such. You, know, you can just at least for a period of time push on and grow the business, grow the organisation and the league. It's fascinating to hear that. That's the case in Mexico. And does it, trying to ask a lawyer not to be precise with an answer, in your sort of, uh, let's say, intuitively, could you see in the coming years, do you feel like there is maybe going to be an opportunity with the owners being a bit more professionalised and you know more other professional services but getting involved, such as the lawyers and you're describing the international landscape of Mexican sport. Could you see that shifting? Yes, and uh, I have to add something, uh, to be fair, uh, before continuing. Uh, there, there's, in the case of football players, there is not a union, but there is an association, okay? Uh, a civil association that, it, it was built, I think, in, well, the origins were in 1993. I was part of the legal team that represented them. I was a law clerk, a law student, uh, working for a, a law firm. And this has been continuing and they keep on, on working. They have done some things, important things, but they have not taken the step to, to, to be a union. Uh, so I don't think that they have the, the enough power or the power that they have. And my point of view is that they, there is no reason that they have not done that. Maybe they are scared, they, are scared, they have been threatened by the owners. I don't know, I don't know, but I think that that step has to be taken because this this association is part of FIPRO and uh, whatever, but my uh, professional point of view is that if they are not a union, they won't work uh, as, as needed. Yeah, so they're doing great stuff. You know, they've done some good stuff, but they are limited without that sort of legal status. Legally speaking. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and again, I I feel for all the people we speak to, like colleagues on the editorial board, and people you know, people you know and I know around the world, there seems to be a common problem in terms of this you know, tipping over to the sort of more professional model. But it seems to come eventually. Now, thank you for setting the scene about Porto Mexico. That's that's really interesting. In terms of your career, you put a wonderful post on LinkedIn some point in the last year, right? Of you which I loved, I really, it was refreshing, you know, and people will understand why when I finally explain what it was. So Ricardo put a post up on, on LinkedIn. It was him in a, in sort of like a tuxedo-y type, uh, um, you know, waistcoat, bow tie, etc. Um, and you were like saying, hey, look, you know, I, I was working in a restaurant, um, you know, but I started from like humble beginnings in this regards before, but, you know, I learned, I think it was something like, you can correct me, but it was like, I learned like how to treat people well and et cetera. And there was this lovely message about it, which was like, look, we all have to start somewhere. We shouldn't get arrogant about where we are now. We should remember where we've come from and that everyone comes from these different backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I th- I'm sure a lot of people, and I think from the comments and the love you probably received from that, a lot of people were sort of clapping at their desks. I was uh, for certain. Can you sort of shed a light in terms of one, why you shared that post at that moment in time? And then let's talk about your career and how you started out in sports law. Yes, I just say uh, everyone has a different history. Uh, all histories are, are, are good n- normally. And uh, well, in, in my case, I was proud of it because 
I went back to to Houston uh, about one year ago, and uh, it was the first time that, that I could go to the restaurant that I worked for <laughs> a long, long time ago and eat the uh, the enchiladas that, that they sell them because it was a Mexican restaurant. I work as a boss boy because uh, first I was I was studying in a public university in Mexico engineering. I didn't like engineering and I I needed to move to another career. I like uh, law, but uh, I, I hadn't decided. So they offered me to go to the US and maybe get uh, a scholarship playing football in the university. And meanwhile, uh, I, I had to, to be there working. So I, I joined this restaurant for six months uh, as a boss boy. Before that, I worked in Mexico in the first McDonald's that was open here in Mexico <laughs> also. Because I needed to get some money from somewhere, yeah. Uh, and uh, I didn't get to be a professional player. I, I played uh, semi-professional in a, in a Mexican team called Pumas. There is a first division team, but I play only in the under sixteen and under seventeen as a goalkeeper. But I wasn't good enough to get money from there, <laughs> so so <laughs> I had to work. Uh, and and so, did you get a scholarship then? Did I miss that? Did you get a scholarship then to the US or not? In the no, end? no. I to tell you the truth, I, I went. Uh, I was offered to get another scholarship in a university in Gulf for Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi is pretty, but uh, I didn't like uh, being a Mexican there. <laughs> yes. <Right. laughs> <laughs> that, that's the truth. Things have changed, but yes, they 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 offered me a scholarship there. But I I came back to Mexico, uh, and I got to study in a Mexican in a private university here. I play in the soccer team there, so I I was able to get a, a scholarship uh, by playing football. In school. And I also was the founding uh, coach of the female uh, representative team of the university. It was different. There was no no uh, female football at that time, and if you let me tell this, the story about that later, it, it was very tell interesting. Tell it now. Because, yeah, tell okay. it now. Yeah, please. Yes, I I was playing for for the for the team there. I was also studying, uh, working in a in a law firm, uh, part time, and uh, when I was. Uh, talking with a couple of uh, female friends uh, that were students from the same same university they they like it, uh, football a lot but they told me we don't have a team we don't have uh, uh, where to play uh, so what what can what can we do i think that this has to be changed because if you look at the us or you look at europe well, it, this is more normal so what i told them why don't we go to the authorities the sports authorities of the university and we proposed them to to open a team, a female team, a representative team, and uh, we had we, we were lucky. They accepted to open this team, and I, I offered to be the, the the coach. And uh, what was interesting, and uh, is, uh, I think that we are lucky that this this is history now. But uh, lots of uh, girls from 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 the university arrived wanted wanted that they wanted to play. But some of them told me that they didn't. They, they wanted to play, but they maybe they didn't have the permission of their of their parents because their parents uh, thought that it was a men's sport and they wow. didn't have to play there. Also, in the case of the boyfriends of the of some of the players, they told me I don't want my boyfriend uh, 
to be aware that I'm playing here because uh, he's going to get mad. It was a very different cultural uh, way of seeing things 30 something years ago that, that we are now. Uh, as I told you, uh, we're lucky and that's good that this is just history. And uh, thanks to lots of uh, women that have uh, worked hard for this, uh, in the case of Mexico uh, and all over the world, this this has been changed. And now, now as it has to be uh, playing any sport uh, by a female uh, or a male, uh, it's, it's the same, <laughs> but it wasn't at that time. So uh, it was a hard uh, fight. Is that so where your sort of interest in sports law sort of, is that the sort of the first yes, moment where it really sort of clicks? That's true. Uh, things of uh, a lack of equality in sports, for example, being a player, a semi-professional player, I, I also see what was to be that and being, uh, it was not easy. Uh, and the, the conditions were not as, as good as they are right now. Uh, so yes, I, I was working in a labor law, law firm and uh, I was lucky also as a student working law clerk or whatever you, you call it uh, to be involved. It was a law firm uh, of my family, of uh, an uncle and a, and a cousin uh, dedicated to labor law. And my, my uh, uh, uncle that already passed away was very famous here in Mexico. So he received some interesting cases relating to labor law, but related to, to uh, uh, sports people. For example, I know if you remember Leo Benhacker, the coach, he was the coach of Real Madrid and Barcelona and also the uh, Netherlands uh, uh, team, I guess. He came here uh, to Mexico to, to uh, work for uh, the Club America, that is a famous one here in Mexico. Yeah. And he was fired there. So uh, we were hired by, by him to, to defend him. And it was a very, very interesting case. Uh, I was part of the team, but just just watching. Uh, <laughs> and then there was another case here in Mexico. Uh, I don't know if you remember also Jose Mari Vaquero, who was the captain a long time ago of Barcelona and the, of the Spanish national team a long time. And he came to to play to a, a team of the coast uh, called Veracruz. And uh, he also had a problem with with him. He hired us, and we we but to represent him in front of the labor authorities, the Mexican labor authorities. So those kind of, of things uh, made me see through, through this way. And so then you start to, so you're working at that, that, that firm. How did you get involved with being an arbitrator and then being an arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration for Sport? Because you know now everyone knows the Court of Arbitration for Sport. We like, you know, if you're into sport, everyone's very familiar with it. Back in 2002, uh, barely anyone would have been uh, sort of, you know, particularly in legal circles. It probably didn't get, uh, you know, it probably was that people would have said, who's that? What do they do? Yes. W when I received the invitation, I, I said, this looks interesting, but uh, I wasn't sure what it, what it was. And well, now I am very proud. And, uh, it's, it is a big, big honor to keep on being part of the corporation report. For me, uh, it's the most interesting uh, work that I do every day. That, that, that's the truth. Uh, but uh, well, I was when I left that, this law firm and I uh, had my own law firm with some with some uh, partners, and then now I have my own law firm just with some associates. 
But at that time, uh, some players called me uh, and they, they asked me if, we, if I could uh, help them to become a union. That association uh, wanted at that time to, to become a union. It was not easy because none of the owners wanted this to happen. <laughs> and the, the, the players involved in this didn't have money. And so uh, it was pro bono, but it was a fight of five years, five years. We got in front of the Supreme Court. We got in front of the uh, International Labor Organization also in Switzerland. They, they sent a recommendation to the government of Mexico to respect the, uh, the rights of the, of the players as, as uh, employees. And we got, legally speaking, we won the case. We got the, uh, the registration of the, of the National Union of Football Players. But what happened is that uh, at that time they were threatened by the, by the owners. That's what they say, and I believe them. So when there had to be a meeting to, to get to the, a, a new board, only uh, five or six players went. So it was not a, it was not possible to to have this new board. Uh, so the uh, union uh, the union legally exists, but uh, they were not able to uh, keep on working because there was no, no nothing nobody from the main players uh, wanted to 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 help wow. to help them. And, and, and then the association that I told you was the one that continued. And so, uh, and is it, would it would it be right, Ricardo, to say that there's some political problems in Mexico, right? And it's a can be a highly sort of uh, charged environment, right? In terms of particularly with football as well, you know, around the world, very emotional. But obviously in Mexico, there can be. Um, you know, would there would it be fair to say that there's when you're saying like the you know, owners are influencing players? It's quite. An, it could be at least interpreted as quite an aggressive influencing, not just a legal threats or stuff like that, yes. right? Is it a bit more sinister than, than that? Yes, I, things have changed. Uh, I think that now I have discussed this. I have also clubs as, as, as clients and I have discussed this openly with them. And I, I think that this is a cultural thing that, they, as I told you at the beginning, they are afraid of, of the unions because they have seen other unions that maybe don't work the way uh, it is needed. But, uh, and the players also are very easily controlled in this specifically, specific issue because a cultural thing, that's, that's the truth. But uh, I think that uh, uh, what they have not understand is that this is good for the business. This is good for both parties, not only for the players. It's but good for the business. Uh, if you are a good club, Paying good amount of money for the players, uh, getting uh, some very good benefits, and then you have a, another team that maybe is not paying the uh, the players. Uh, that's unfair, and th this affects the competition because you have to pay lots of money, and maybe the, this this uh, team that is playing against you doesn't have to. So he he has an advantage. Uh, so I see it that way. I see it that way. Uh, I hope that they, uh, that they, this association that, that we already have uh, becomes a union and they have all the legal power to sign a collective bargaining agreement, speaking specifically in the, in the football case. That's, I think that, that that will help. I am not criticizing the people that it is managing the, 
the union. I think they're, they're good people. They're doing whatever what, what, what is uh, in their power. But my criticism is from a legal point of view. Be a union. Have a collective bargaining agreement. That's all. And so to, to two points then. So if I'm understanding it, the sort of cultural understanding of what a union is, is a problem in the sense conceptually they perceive it as being, as you were saying, controlled by maybe some parties or, or having mafia. a mafia, yeah, mafia, <laughs> particular agenda. Um, and so that's an issue, right? So they immediately see that as like, oh, we don't want that because it could be worse than what we've already got. And then do you think that if they, if in football they were to be successful, do you think that could pave the way then for other sports as well? Is, is it right to say that, that football, boxing, boxing always seems obviously Canelo Alvarez, uh, you know, people may have heard of him. It's quite done all right <laughs> in uh, boxing. Um, but Mexicans got, got a steep history in boxing as well. Um, yeah. Is it kind of like football, boxing, baseball was the top three or how's it? Yes, and basketball also, I, I think. Yes, I think that, that that this has to happen in all of the of the different uh, sports, important sports. I was the external uh, lawyer of the Mexican Baseball League uh, for three years, so at that time I couldn't speak about this. But I I, I have spoken uh, freely about things that I I think that, and I can do it. So right now, that is that that. that for me, it is important for a league to have uh, unionized, uh, unionized players. I think it is, it is very good. It is necessary. And it is urgent in the case of Mexico. If we compare what you have in your country, what, you have, what they have in Argentina, in Argentina, they have a collective bargaining agreement from 1972, one of the wow. first ones around the world. Uh, in the U.S., as you said, uh, we, we have a very big example in baseball, basketball, uh, even in football and American football. So, uh, and they are the best business in the world. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I said <laughs> this, I had this, I, had, I had this conversation with a particular organization and I won't say which one because it was a private conversation, but they're doing something in a certain part of the world. And I said to them, they should encourage the unionization of the athletes. And it was interesting, the response, because, you know, I didn't get the kind of response that I thought I was going to get from them in the sense because I said that if you look at the evolution of sport, it just seems quite sensible that, you know, in the absence of that, you can get corruptors and influencers who cause problems, disruptors in the middle. Um, maybe there's a point where you don't want one just because you're trying to you know, grow your organization and you haven't got the resources. But when you get to a certain level of resources as an organization, it would seem, particularly if you're managing these multiple stakeholders, multiple clubs, multiple leagues, whatever it is, that having another, uh, you know, the labor movement organized so you can communicate with them directly rather than just through the ownership structures or the politics of that would seem very sensible because you can focus the issues a bit more. So uh, yeah, I I totally agree with you on this. And then, so how I, did the, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was telling you everything, all of this, because uh, what happened is when I begin uh, being the uh, external lawyer of this union, or uh, potentially union, then they become a union. At the end, they got some some help from Titro, and uh, it, it was 2002. And and uh, uh, as you know, well, FIFA well uh, be, began to have uh, the cast as the appealing body in 2002, I guess, or 2000. And so. So they were asking uh, the different stakeholders to propose some arbitrators. So I was proposed through FIFA, first through FIPRO and then through FIFA. And FIFA proposed me to, to, to the, the cast and I was accepted. 
So oh, amazing. Was, that, that was the way. Sorry, I, I just was, want to make that clear. So there's yes. a beautiful story in this, which is you did pro bono work right, yes, for, for an, at, for, at for an association. They, at, the end, at the end, they pay me something when they get some <laughs> money from FIPRO, but uh, four years for free. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so te- technically, okay, that's lovely they did that. But, you know, technically, though, pro bono. And the reason why I say this is there's a lot of people around the world who, in my opinion, overlook the contribution they can make. And don't be wrong, I think there's a lot of great people doing great things like yourself and others who have done who you know i think there's a lot of people in sport lawyers in sport who are contributing but it should never be overlooked right like the opportunities he gets for doing a good job helping people um yeah yes you have the opportunity that's uh, you are uh saying a very important thing for me that i have now uh looking back 20 years is I, I, I thought that were, what the players were doing was correct because they were proposing to be a, a good union, not a political one. They wanted to, to, to have the players have some obligations. And they, they, they were, uh, from my point of view, a, a good uh, union to be. Uh, so I decided to, to help them. And pro bono, and it was hard because I, I had a fight uh, against uh, important people in the other side. Maybe not legally in the other side, but, but they were pushing not to have a union. And at, at the end, uh, this, uh, what happened helped me to get into this uh, magnificent uh, field of sports law. Uh, so I am very grateful that I had that opportunity. Uh, for me, I think it was the beginning of, of, of this career that I, I hope that has lot to, to do in the future. But uh, uh, I think that you have said something important about that. This. Well, I, I love that for because I just think this is a great example for everyone to sort of you know draw on and learn from and, and and I think reflect on, particularly, as I said, the younger generation coming through who often feel like there's all these things going on, but there's always someone you can help, right? There's always an organization that needs or a group of players or athletes that need help that you can support. So then you became an arbitrator for the Court of Arbitration of Sport in 2002. And then... Then what happened? So you obviously probably started getting your first cases, but what else happened? No, because you obviously got your practice and then the arbitration work. Yes, well, as uh, you know, as an arbitrator, I cannot uh, take cases in front of the of the CAS. I think that is this is a very normal and good rule to have. It's not a necessary rule, <laughs> uh, and uh, well, some the cases in front of of, of CAS have been an honor for me. Uh, have been very interesting. In uh, I began with some football cases, but uh, then I, I have been able to to be in, in panels or or as a sole arbitrator in different uh, sport uh, topics uh, cases, uh, match fixing, uh, anti doping, uh, corruption, uh, also football tennis uh, and as you said uh, it was a very very good experience and, and a great great honor to, to be part of the adult division uh, in London uh, being in London was an, uh, quite an experience uh, you have a very very you had a very good organization uh, amazing organization and as everybody knows London is a great city uh, so uh, and, and then and also we had some interesting cases uh, speaking of the work and apparently, I also uh, began to, to get some cases related uh, with, with sports uh, in front of, of international federations. Like I can go in front of international federations 
if the case goes to CAS, I cannot continue with it. Uh, and uh, some cases representing, uh, for example, a fencing athlete in a, in a, in a case uh, in front of the International Fencing Federation was, was an interesting one. It, it's still an interesting one because it has not finished. But I don't know if, if, if I can, I have time to, to tell you yeah, about this case. It. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she, she was, this, this is the case of Paula Pierre, which is a public case. Uh, she was number one in her category of the world uh, uh, about one year before the Olympic Games of Rio in 2000, 2015, this was. And uh, he, he had qualified to be uh, at the Olympic Games of Rio. He, she went to a, to a competition in Panama, a Pan-American competition organized by the International Fencing Federation. And uh, well, she, she got the first place or second, something like that. And a few, uh, and they sent all the, all the, uh, exa the, the examples of, of, of doping to, to a Mexican, to a Mexican lab uh, that was, uh, that had the recognition of war, okay? Uh, and uh, well, she was notified about two weeks or three weeks before the Olympic Games. It was uh, for a potential four years uh, suspension. Okay. Well, she she came to our law firm. Uh, she decided that we represent her. And as you know, uh, uh, we had two ways. One way was maybe, and in that case, I had to go out of the case to go in a fast uh, track uh, in, uh, case in front of, of, of CAS uh, with an agreement with the International Federation. But we only have about two weeks to prepare that. Uh, who was also, I, I was associated in this case with Paul Green. I was lucky to, yeah. to be with him in this case. Uh, as you know, he's one of the best anti-doping lawyers in the world. And th that was one, one, one way. And the other one, the other way was the normal going in front of the International Federation, in front of a panel, uh, to open sample D, to, uh, to have all the normal process in, in front of us. So here at the law firm, it was a Sunday. Uh, I had to tell Paola the two ways to, to, to go. One was uh, a very difficult one because we didn't have time to prepare. And as you know, it was a, a one shot. And in the other... Uh, she decided to go the normal way. She had to 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 quit going to to the Olympic Games. Uh, imagine the decision that they uh, it was hard, but she decided uh, to go in front of the normal procedure to to take the normal way. Uh, so uh, we asked to open the sample B. Uh, we asked for the sample A package to begin studying it. The sample B package then. And uh, at the end, what happened is that uh, before the hearing and after some uh, documents that we sent to the International Federation, they decided to reanalyze the sample A. Uh, and they sent it uh, to the, uh, Dr. Gray, the director of the Colonia uh, uh, lab. And there was a report from him saying that it was a false positive. That it was a false positive, that the, uh, the there was a mistake from the from the lab. So uh, what happened is that uh, Paola got uh, free. Uh, he was innocent. This was in September. Wada didn't appeal, uh, and 
I think it was a consequence. Uh, two, two weeks after that, uh, WADA uh, re took out the recognition of the Mexican left and they were suspended for about six months or, or eight months. I think uh, with, we were not told that uh, directly, but I think that it was related with this. So he, uh, he was free. We, we won the case in that way, but imagine that but she, uh, she, she, lost wasn't able, she wasn't able to compete in the Olympic Games because of a false positive. So then we no. went to the Mexican courts suing the Mexican lab because, well, there, there are some different, well, people say that it happens because some different reasons. I don't want to talk about it. Some things related to, to corruption, maybe. But uh, what we did is uh, together with other uh, lawyers, civil lawyers, we went in front of the, uh, of the civil courts in Mexico asking for moral damages. And uh, well, in the first and second instance, we won. And now we are uh, waiting for the last instance that is in front of the federal uh, the, in the federal court, we don't know. This can happen. This can change. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have won in the not, first and the second, gonna, but that doesn't know. give you the that doesn't give you the chance to go. No, no matter how much money there is, that does not give you the chance to 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 win a gold medal at the Olympic Games, which you've tried. That's really sad. Like that's very, really very sad. I mean, yes. it's extremely sad, right? Because how is she? She had to to get another uh, nationality. Now she competes for Uzbekistan. Because after that, and I want not to get to the details of what yeah. happened, uh, but uh, after that, uh, that she was able to compete, she won two medals in a Pan-American competition. She won one medal in a Central America competition. And uh, well, she, she was number one, uh, at least in this zone. Mm. But they say that the Mexican Federation didn't allow her to get to the important competitions, to get points to go to the Tokyo uh, yes, oh, uh, it's, it's a <laughs> so she wow. in front of this she decided to go to another country. She didn't have time to to get enough points to points. be in Paris because this decision was taken uh, I think one year before Tokyo to 2021, and and now she's living in Paris, uh, hoping to compete in Paris. Uh, I think this oh, is her last chance, but. Yes, me too. But this is an yeah. example of the mixture of corruption and something. <laughs> yeah, corruption and incompetence for both. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But unfortunately, this is one of the, you know, in the, in our sector. And this is, you know, Ricardo. I'm so pleased to to have you on. And you know, I think it's coming across for everyone listening that you're, you know, a compassionate individual. And because, like, you know, you could be talking about yourself, and instead you're talking about obviously you're involved in the case, but you're talking about this 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 athlete. Um, unfortunately, you know, given all the all the stuff that's going on in world sport, and there's a lot going on all the time. Sometimes these stories, and I've heard a few of them over the years, particularly from Paul, but from others who have people who, who you know, there's always something that I struggled with. Was it was uh, Joseph Vandalos was telling me about someone he represented where someone committed an anti-doping rule violation for a substance that was not even a performance-enhancing substance that was subsequently taken off the list like four months later. And they couldn't go to the Olympics because of that. And it was admitted that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, they, there was no intention behind it. It was just uh, the fact that they'd taken this, I think it was prescribed by, a you know, on a situation mm -hmm. prescribed by a doctor, et cetera. It just feels so, you know, I know these things are always difficult in the, in the international 
context to to administer. But it, I don't know. There's something that deeply you know you know feels so wrong about this in terms of when it deprives someone, given that it's not like not it'd be good for anyone but it's not like this this fencer is probably a, a multi-billionaire <laughs> you know yeah. they're not a Le, they're not a lebron james or a messi or a or an yes. who got got a lot of money right they probably made quite a significant yes. amount of sacrifices financially as well as physically was, like the it, other athletes it was team. a big sacrifice yes what what the first instance a judge considered is that there was a moral damage of seven hundred fifty thousand dollars uh as I told you, it can get to zero. We don't know. We are in the third instance, but uh, it was at least uh, the first instance of something that that may be historic, uh, globally speaking. Because I, I think we have only had some few cases uh, in which the athletes have uh, seek for moral damage. In this case, uh, in front of a governmental uh, lab, and has at, at least in the first instance gotten. Uh, uh, something in favor of, of the of the athlete. You know, it's interesting. I wrote an article that, that wasn't very popular, <laughs> but on this particular topic saying that, you know, given the, the work that we do in this space, that it would seem inevitable in a system like this, right? There's going to be these type of inevitable uh, in a world context, there's going to be these type of cases. And wouldn't it be right, whether it's an insurance policy or whether it's funded by donations from or contribution from the IOC and from others, that there's a fund for this type of situation, right? When there's athletes who are falsely accused of, and then it's proven that there's been, you know, in this instance, they are a false positive, that they're not just left high and dry to cover their own legal bills to, because it's part of a system failure and it's foreseeable that there's going to be that system failure. Right, rather than what's happened in the past has been ignored. I think, you know, it's a great point, and we need to maybe pick up another conversation about that. Can you keep us posted? I think yeah, everyone sure. listening would be fascinated to hear what the outcome of that is. Sure, sure. Yes. Brilliant. And so, in an incredibly humble way, obviously, you've avoided talking about your career <laughs> to a certain degree, apart from that case. What would you say has been, you know, that's a really interesting case, but what would you say has been the most interesting case as an arbitrator that you have sat on? There are, there are, it's, it is difficult to say because uh, every case, uh, apart from the amount or, or uh, the, the, the amount doesn't matter. All, all, all of them are very interesting. Uh, uh, I have, as I told you, had some uh, cases related to, to football or related to match fixing. I think that technic technically speaking, those cases involving match fixing and investigation regarding match fixing are very interesting because you have to analyze all the previous investigation made by, by the authority. Uh, some international federations have uh, very, very strong, or have very, very strong bodies uh, fighting the, the match fixing uh, and the corruption. And they have very, very, uh, they have some systems that are, are example for the other uh, federations. So I had a, a case uh, regarding tennis that is uh, a public one. Uh, I was together uh, with one arbitrator from, from Switzerland and, and another one from a uh, former judge from the UK. And it, it is public, so I can say the name. Uh, it was the Olaso de la Rica against the International Tennis Federation. And it was a match fixing case. Uh, for me, because it was the first one, uh, analyzing a case related to that topic, it was one of the most interesting. Uh, 
having all the explanations of the investigations, ha having heard the version of the of the player, knowing what it is involved uh, regarding the mafia uh, that that it, it's behind the scenes in these in these cases. So um, I think it was uh, technically speaking, it was one of the more most interesting. I have also have some cases with big amount of money regarding transfers and uh, and what make all these cases interesting, and I think this is important for law in sport, is that uh, now it is normal that you have uh, in both sides very, very good lawyers. And this high, high level of litigations is, is very interesting as, for us as, as arbitrators, for, but for the, for the business and for everything. So uh, what I want to say is that uh, every case is very interesting. Uh, thanks to the way uh, the good lawyers uh, take the cases in front of us. Uh, so uh, I have to say that, that it is amazing that, that uh, now it's very rare that you don't uh, get a very good lawyer in one of the, of the, of, of the cases in front of us. And it's a great point you make because I think this is one of the things that people don't realise. It's like when people are doing commercial deals or, you know, they are litigating. Like people like in sport, they like to have good competition on the other side. It makes it uh, more interesting and no doubt from an adjudication perspective, obviously much more enjoyable if you have people who know what they're doing rather than, <laughs> you know, going back and forth, you know, on points that aren't relevant or, or you know, having to pick up procedural issues. In terms of then... The highlight of your career to date, what would you say it is? Is it, you know, doing the, you know, the, the Mexican Football Association, Footballers Association, or what would you say, or this this fencing case, or would you be appointed as an arbitrator for CAS? You know, because you are involved as well. And as I said, you're a humble guy, but you are involved in speaking at various conferences around the world and facilitating the understanding of sports law more broadly. So, so what would you say is the, um, is kind of the highlight so far? I, I don't know. Uh, I don't like to speak uh, about myself uh, regarding. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> uh, but I, I, well, I think that being a cast arbitrator, being in front of different panels, uh, for me, is, has been the most important part of of, of my sports law uh, career. I think. But also, when I can act as a lawyer in, in other instances, uh, and having these cases where where the so in some cases, clubs are confident with you, or some cases, uh, athletes, and uh, you can win, you can lose, but you you do the best thing you can do for for them. Also important for me, and, and make you learn every day. You're you're learning. One important thing regarding sports law, uh, and this is for the students, is okay. Being a law student is reading. <laughs> we know we all know that. Being a lawyer, uh, it's reading a lot, uh, studying a lot. Being an international lawyer is uh, reading more because you have to uh, know different rules from different world, uh, different part of the world. But being an international sports lawyer is, I think, uh, you have to to be a very very good reader because you have to to uh, read the regulations of a specific national uh, sports organization. That you have may have two uh, two hundred different <laughs> in that, uh, of of them, and then you have to read an international ex uh, sports organization rules that are very different from the other one. So the material to read as as, as an arbitrator or a lawyer related to sports uh, it's 
big it's, en- it's endless right like i, yeah, I feel endless. that way like, I, I, I feel that way at the moment right like as in trying to devise new strategies to be able to cover stuff like fifa put out their um obviously their commentary on the rst regulation of status of transfer of players and you know that's 140 pages right and i keep joking around with them i'm like can you stop doing these reports because <laughs> i think i've now it's probably up to a 1500 worth of pages of reports from fifa alone in the last year right and then you've got the UNODC reports and, and yes. that's not and that's not the you know the regulations themselves or the cases that cas are putting out or sports resolution or jams or whoever it is around the world there's a lot to, to you know the FIFA DRC there's, I agree with you there's a lot a lot to read in terms of then if you're going to give I guess any advice to people who are before you as a yeah, what top tips would you give to people who are before you as an arbitrator or people and or and it's up to you. I'll leave it. It might be awkward for you to say, or people, you know, trying to progress their careers in the sector, or you know, build a sports practice. What what sort of advice would you give? It's very difficult. I think that I'm going to give the same advice that everybody does because it's, it's difficult. Uh, for example, in 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 this area in Latin America, we have lots of students, well, all around the world, wanting to to be part of sports law. Uh, but in this specific part of, of the world, there's not much uh, w- jobs to <laughs> be offered uh, because the business of the sport is not as big as in, in, in Europe or in, in North America. Uh, so we have a market uh, coming with lots and lots of students who wanted to get to a very, very small uh, demand of, of lawyers uh, in front of, of a huge number of students. But what I have seen uh, teaching in ISDE, for example, where you get different international uh, students, and then you see what has happened with them. Uh, for example, in the case of some Mexican students that I had them about eight years ago there in Madrid as, as an ISDE professor, they uh, made their practices and they, they say, well, I am an expert. I have been in one of the best uh, universities or one of the best masters regarding sports law, but I don't have work to do. I have applied in FIFA, in X Federation, but there's nothing. And they they came back to Mexico, but they, they kept on trying. They kept on trying. They sent um, letters to all the federations. And now uh, I can be proud as Mexican that we have three of them working for, uh, uh, the highest level, for, for example, Mario Flores Chamor, uh, you know that he's, yeah, yeah. he's at the European Clubs Association. He's a very, very good, good lawyer. Very good. Uh, he he, he worked at FIFA very hard. He did a very good job there. But uh, he was here at, the, at this law firm. You can ask him. And uh, he was asking me, what can we, what can I do? What uh, <laughs> I, I cannot find a job. But he made a very great, uh, persuasive job. And now he's there. And there's another one, um, uh, Marco Amezcua, that is in FIFA, working at the professional department, football department. Yeah. Both of them have spoken at uh, our conferences. So, and they're, 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 yes, uh, and they, yeah, were, great. they were young students uh, not knowing what to do at the beginning. Uh, and that's what I tell everybody that, that asks me about, you have to be perseverant. Uh, don't wait to get a job uh, as a lawyer until you get a, a job as a sport lawyer. Keep on. You can work as a civil lawyer, a sports, uh, a commercial lawyer, whatever, and then you may get the opportunity. But practice as a lawyer is important. Don't don't wait uh, in, in the bench until you get a sports law job. 
I think as a girl that that's such great advice. I know you do say it's what everyone's, you know, to a certain degree is what everyone says, but I also think there's this, you know, no matter what stage of your career at, because I see people who want to become an arbitrator, right? And they go, oh, I just can't get the break. And it's like, well, carry on doing what you're doing. And then the opportunity will arise, you know, if you're a bit, you know, got some intention behind what you're trying to do. So, you know, as we'd say in sports, isn't it? Keep yourself in the game, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give yourself the opportunity. Ricardo, I think, you know, it's come across loud and clear. You're a gentleman always so smiley and happy and like i said it's mm. been lovely to see you when you've been over in london and or we've met at the sla conference and so forth or we just catch up generally thank you for shedding a light onto your career yeah it's funny because i got you on as a podcast and you actually don't like talking i just as we're doing it i'm like yeah that's a good point he actually doesn't like talking about himself but nevertheless your insights are extremely useful and i think you know the work that you do is not just the work you've done it's about how you carry yourself when you do it which i think speaks volumes and so yeah thank you for the approach that you take in encouraging others because i know you do coach and mentor others particularly in latin america it's awesome to have you on the podcast and as i say to everyone look if you like what ricardo said something resonates with you about his story his journey i'm sure he'd love to hear from you so please do get in contact if other people you think would find it useful and i know there's a lot of people you know, our mentees for one, but others who would find this particularly useful, or if you're into antidoping, please do share it. You know, that's all we ask. We don't have any sponsors for the podcast. I think we've had over a hundred thousand listens now. So it's getting more and more popular. So it's pretty good. We've been going for a while. <laughs> um, yes. But if you do enjoy it, please do tell people about it. It's something we greatly appreciate. And remember, if you want to find out about the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. Of course, we've got our annual conference coming up in December. Make sure you tune into that. If you come in person, even better. You know, and if you are starting out in your career, we've launched our global moot competitions. You can join that and there's others as well you can be part of. Ricardo, I hope you have a wonderful day. And you uh, thank, thank you again. Thank for you being for your the great work. The law in sport is uh, the most important uh, publication regarding uh, sports in the world, sports law in the world. So congratulations. I, I know that it has been a very hard work. And it is for me an honor to be uh, part of it. Well, thank you, Ricardo. And thank you for your support. I always say to people, you know, we've got a good team, like an outstanding team with Chris and Manan and Gabriella and everyone involved in law and sport who do a lot of the hard, heavy lifting for me um, as an organization. But we're the sum of our mass. So we're the sum of our, I keep saying it to people though, because sometimes people don't realize that we've got like 90 odd people on our editorial board. You're one of them who contribute all the time, giving ideas, thoughts, concepts, ideas, all the 900 people I think it is now who've written for us. People like yourself who have spoken at our conferences on the podcast. So it's really a collective effort. So I always think like when people say congratulations about law and sport, I always think that it's kind of like it's congratulations to everyone who's contributed to law and sport. So uh, thank you again, Ricardo. And for everyone, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed the show.